hope you do. Please turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, 26 through 31. Lord willing, this is our, our last message on this passage. And next week we'll wrap up chapter 10. And we're looking at remaining loyal. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 10. And let's read the passage again, 26 through 31. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Wow, what a powerful passage. As we look at this, we've realized the overarching theme is remain loyal. But to remain loyal, we've had to ask some rather difficult questions. I guess asking the questions weren't difficult. It's difficult in finding the answers. And we looked at two initial questions. And so if you're going to get this passage right, you've got to answer these two initial questions. The first is, what is the sin in this warning? And we've learned it's what? The sin of? Apostasy, right. And how does this persistent, deliberate sin of apostasy happen? It's a slow fade. Good. If you've got those two things under your belt, you're ready to dive into the passage. Last two weeks, we've answered two critical questions, though. They're a little more difficult to answer. Who is being warned not to commit this apostasy? And so I had to sit down and put into my words and put into my thought the answer to that. I'm not going to read all that to you, you can look at it, and I've tried to give you kind of the the support of why I came to the conclusions that I did. And basically, he's addressing a church that, like all churches, includes both believers and unbelievers. That's just a fact, okay? Uh, and secondly, but he's a, he's addressing believers who the writer views as truly converted. Just as when I stand up here and teach or Bruce stands up to preach, we're addressing people who, in large measure, we're considering truly converted. But at the end of the day, what is happening, and when you study the book of Hebrews, really, who, who is speaking through Scripture is God. And ultimately, God is warning His true believers to persevere in spite of persecution, to persevere as we have heard from the new believers in Mozambique, to remain loyal to the Lord in spite of the fact that there are some who are falling, potentially will fall away. So that's who's being addressed. The second critical question is, well, why warn those who are truly saved if in reality they won't fall away? 
And we've tried to present to you that God uses means to accomplish His ends. Even though God has eternally secured and chosen and elected and predestined and sovereignly saved His people, He still used the gospel to get them saved. And that gospel included both exhortations to believe and warnings that if you don't believe, here's what's going to happen. And God continues to use those means. There's just no denying that in the book of Hebrews, that even though we are eternally secure, if we are a true believer in Jesus Christ, we still need to be warned. Don't get lazy. Don't get apathetic. Don't drift away. Be diligent to run the race until you have reached the finish line. And so... One thing I want to say by way of introduction, having looked at those, those uh, questions, not everyone who falls away as an apostate always goes away. We learned this truth in the book of Jude, when we studied the book of Jude. Not everybody that falls away goes away. Sometimes they fall away from the faith, but they seek to stay in the church and they become false teachers. And that's especially true when the apostate is a pastor. Because this is what they've been doing. This is how they get paid. And sadly, they don't go away. Uh, But it can also be true of people, regular people in a church. They've become apostates who have fallen away from the faith once delivered to the saints, but have not fully forsaken the church. And they still claim to be Christians, at least a new kind of Christian which is actually a book written by Brian McLaren, a new kind of Christian. I tried to read it, but I couldn't finish it. It was just, he's an apostate. He is a new kind of Christian, the apostate kind of Christian. Um, And here's the reality. With the dawn of the digital age that we live in, apostates more than ever who have fallen away from the faith and even forsaken the local church don't go away. Okay, they are there. They are present. And the result is a new phenomenon, which is called the deconversion story. The deconversion story is where people who have denied the faith share their testimony of how they fell away from the faith. Now, you say, why would they do that? Well, there's at least three reasons. First of all, to gain sympathy. Because when you fall away from the faith and you're a high-profile person or you're a blogger or you're a pastor, there's going to be blowback. Blowback from who? From the people of God. And suddenly, your income, suddenly, your reputation, suddenly, people are... Because once you come out and deny the faith, then... All of a sudden, there's pushback. So a lot of times, it's to gain sympathy. Secondly, it's often to make a profit by selling books about their deconversion or movies. And then thirdly, most of all, it's to influence others to do the same. It's a perverted reverse form of evangelism, okay? And a great reminder, again, for us to be sharing our testimony. Hey, if the apostate can share their testimony, why aren't we who truly believe out there sharing ours? Well, there is great power 
in the deconversion story. And so what I've given you or have available for you are three different articles. Uh, I, I mentioned the article from minister to atheist in five simple steps. I gave you that. And then uh, Jen Hatmaker and the power of deconversion stories. This is a great breakdown. That's a lady that uh, has attracted a lot of women who are believers until she came out. And then uh, and, and it's just the goal is is to be discerning, okay? Obviously, I'm not giving you this so you can read it and become an apostate. I'm giving you this so you can read it and discern. Because to be honest, with a person like Jen, Jen Hatmaker, discern, discernment would have helped you to see where she was heading far before she ever came out on what she believed. And even Rob Bell is still around. So those are three things that I give to you. Well, that leads me to ask the probably the final question and perhaps the most significant question of all of this passage and of people like these and people that you know. And the question is this, one final question that must be answered to remain loyal, and it's this, what are the consequences? What are the consequences of committing the sin of apostasy? And be honest with you, that's what 26 through 31 is about from beginning to end. We just had to do these preliminary lessons because we're jumping into the middle of this book. And so what are the consequences? Well, we went over four views, and all of the views, say except one, says the view is eternal condemnation, eternal damnation. The only view that doesn't say that is the view that says the warning is for believers and the warning is not about falling away from the faith, but it's about not growing to maturity. But I think as we move through this passage, you're going to see just how uh, that view, how much that view cannot be supported by the language of this text in particular. So let's take a look at it. Remaining loyal as believer priests, we should remain loyal because the apostate has only three consequences in his life. Let's look at the first one. For the apostate, all that remains is the frightening expectation of certain judgment. Listen, remain loyal, believer, because for the apostate, the only thing that remains is the certain expectation of a frightening judgment. Look again at verses 26 and 27. For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, that's what tells us this is the sin of apostasy, what happens? There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Man, that is some heavy language, is it not? So let's look at it. First of all, there no longer remains the confident expectation of salvation. There no longer remains any hope, any confidence of expecting salvation. Now, why is that? Uh, well, it's because they have walked away. They are persisting in walking away from the only hope for salvation. Look at verse, uh, let's compare verse 18 and 26. Notice verse 18 uh, in chapter 10. 
there's a positive idea here of there no longer being any offering for sin in verse 18. And that is good news because when we remain loyal to Christ with a persevering faith, by grace alone, through faith alone, as seen by drawing near, holding fast, staying close, all that we've studied, there's no need for an atoning sacrifice. You know why? Because Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. So as long as you remain loyal to Christ, there's no need for any other works. There's no need for any other effort in order to try and be forgiven because Jesus is that atoning sacrifice. But look at verse 26. Here's the negative idea of there no longer remaining a sacrifice for sins. When we deliberately walk away from Christ, and we walk away from the faith. Reje- the apostate is rejecting his or her only hope for salvation. The only hope that God has provided. The only hope that he has revealed through his son, Jesus Christ. You see, here's the idea. As, so- as long as the apostate continually rejects what he knows of the gospel then he is continually remaining with no other hope of salvation. It seems kind of basic, but it's kind of important to realize that when you walk away from Christ, then you've walked away from salvation. And the only thing that remains is what? The only thing that remains is the certain expectation of judgment. So when you walk away... From the confident expectation of salvation, the only thing that remains is the certain expectation of judgment. Now look at verse 27 where he says this. You've walked away from God's only hope of salvation that he provides, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and, and circle that and, because this word for judgment that he uses includes both the verdict And the sentence, this word for judgment often includes both the verdict that is given, you are guilty, as well as the sentence that you will suffer. And the and in verse 27 ties these two ideas together. So let's kind of look at that. What remains for the apostate? First of all, all that remains is a verdict of fearful condemnation. That's going to be the verdict. Fearful condemnation. This word for judgment in verse 29. The writer of Hebrew describes it in some particular ways. First of all, it's a condemning judgment. This isn't chastisement of a father towards a disobedient son. This is the condemnation of a holy God to someone who has rejected his only way of salvation. So I want to be clear. In Romans or I'm sorry, in Hebrews 12, there is the idea of God as a loving father disciplining his children. But that's not what this word here means. This word is a condemning judgment where God pours out his eternal wrath on unbelievers. Secondly, uh second we see this, it's a frightening judgment. Okay? 
you know, we're supposed to, you know, if our dad's chastising us, disciplining us, we should be fearful of our dads. But we shouldn't be frightened and scared out of our wits. And that's what the idea here is. Okay, so in your Bibles, you might have terrifying, fearful. This word is the main focus of this entire passage. Notice verse 27, terrifying expectation. Look at verse 31, same word. It is a terrifying thing. This whole passage is to instill fear into anyone who would even consider walking away from the gospel. There is a condemning judgment. There is a terrifying judgment. In fact, this idea of terrifying fear is found three other times in the book of Hebrews. And let me give you those verses. It's found in 2.15. 2.15. And it speaks of the fear of death for one who is still enslaved in their sins. And then it shows up again in ten, here in 1027, where it is a fear of God's terrifying judgment. And then it appears one more time in chapter 12, in 1221, where the fear is a fear of God's holy presence uh, encountering God's holy presence in person. So there's this progression in the book of Hebrews. There is this fear of death if you are still enslaved in your sins. There's a fear of God's fiery, ferocious judgment that we see here in chapter 10. But then there is the fear of encountering God's holy presence in person. And when you tie this together, what is the idea? Well, the idea is what you find in Hebrews 9.27. There is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, what? The judgment of encountering a holy God. And that should scare the bejeebies out of you. I don't even know if that's a good thing to say, but I just said it. It should just scare you. And the problem is, even as us as believers, we don't have a proper fear of God. Because this, this God is the God who graciously saved us. And guess what? He didn't change once He saved us. I mean, this is still who He is. So the idea here that this judgment is in any way a loving father's chastisement of his wayward saved children just doesn't hold up. No, this is a warning that if we as believers walk away from the faith, and whoever does walk away from the faith, this is the only thing that they have frightened. It is condemning, it is frightening, and then number three, it is a certain judgment. Now, I'm going to go Greek on you, not to impress you, but because it's, it was the original language the Bible was written in. There's this little, little three-letter Greek word that's found in verse 27. And it's a little particle. It's just this little word, tis, okay? And most of our translations, unfortunately, don't translate, except the Net Bible does, and the New King James Bible does. And the Greek scholars tell me that the presence of this little particle in that sentence in the original Greek is to bring a force of certainty. 
And therefore, the Net Bible says, the only thing that remains for an apostate is a certain fearful expectation. New King James, a certain fearful expectation. This is a condemning judgment. It is a frightening judgment because it is a certain judgment. So that's the, that's the verdict. That's the verdict. Now, what's the sentence? It's on the other side of the and in your verse. So look in that verse. It says, and the fire, the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. That's the sentence. That's what you will receive. All that remains is a sentence of fiery consequences. And again, we see a description of this, a threefold description of this sentence. It is a raging fire. Some of your Bibles have raging fire. Most of them have a fury of fire. Furious, raging, anger, burning. It's intense. You want to write down the ideas. It's a jealous and zealous fire. That's the idea. God is zealous for His holiness. God is zealous that there be no sin, that sin be condemned, that sin be judged by the fire of His holiness. And that's the idea here. In fact, uh, the background, and you might, or I think I have it in your notes, Isaiah 26, 11. O Lord, Your hand is lifted up, yet they do not see it. Lifted up in judgment. Remember, the hands of the living God. Your hand is lifted up, yet they do not see it. They see your zeal for the people, and they are put to shame. Indeed, fire will devour your enemies. God is zealous and jealous for His honor, for His glory. And it's a fire that burns from His very being and His holy character. Now, it's ironic, whenever I I see this in Scripture, I always think back, to uh, a deconversion story by Oprah Winfrey. In fact, in, in the past, I've shown the clip of her saying this. This is her testimony of becoming an apostate. Here's, here I read, uh, let me read her quote. I took God out of the box, and the box is orthodoxy. The box is Bible teaching. I took God out of the box because I grew up in the Baptist church and their rules and belief systems and doctrine. I happened to be sitting in the church in my late 20s. I was going to a church where you had to get there at 8 o'clock in the morning or you couldn't get a seat. A very charismatic minister where everybody is into the sermon. This great minister was preaching on how great God was, how omniscient, omnipresent, God is everything. Notice her great knowledge of the truth. And then he said, The Lord thy God is a jealous God, which is right out of Scripture. I was caught up in the rapture of the moment until he said, quote, jealous. And then something struck me. I was like 27 or 28, and I'm thinking, God is all? God is omnipresent? God is also jealous? God is jealous of me? And something about that didn't feel quite right in my spirit. And that is where the search 
for something more than doctrine started to stir within me. All because she didn't go up to her pastor and say, now what do you mean that God is jealous? All because she didn't ask a question to clarify. What do you mean by that? Because the reality is, what Oprah didn't realize is that God isn't jealous of her as if he wants something that she has, as if he needs something from her. God is jealous because he wants her and all lost people to fill the void and the emptiness of their life with his glory, with his greatness, with his grace. God is not jealous because he's needy. It's because he is worthy and deserves that which he is worthy of. And he is very jealous, very zealous to preserve who he is among his creation, which is his right. Right? And it's not a selfish right. It is a merciful right because what is best for us is to give him the glory that he deserves. We find our greatest joy. We find our greatest fulfillment in acknowledging who we are in light of who he is. So God's zeal for his glory is also a gracious gift to you and I. See me for who I am so you can see yourself for who you are. Give me the glory I deserve. I will give you grace, mercy, compassion, but you will find your greatest fulfillment in recognizing that. This is critical. This is critical. This is a raging fire. And so you either come to this raging fire by faith and find your fulfillment in who he is, or you walk away from it and are consumed by it. And that is the second aspect. It is not only a raging fire, it is a consuming fire in verse 27. The fury of a fire which will consume. And the idea is to utterly destroy. Now when I say destroy, it doesn't mean annihilate, like you're going to burn something up. You know, like if you burn a piece of paper, what's left? ashes but you know and that just blows away nothing's left so it's not the idea that unbelievers or apostates are going to be burned to extinction the idea is they are going to be consumed in judgment to the point where they can no longer exert their rebellion against god but must bow their knee and confess that which they once knew that god is god and jesus is lord And they are sent away into eternal conscious torment of burning, raging fire. All their rebellion, all their self grand, you know, self exaltation is judged and is consumed into God's destructive condemnation. It number three, it's a hostile fire. This is a fire that is not for true believers. This is not for His children. This isn't a fire that purifies. This is a fire that punishes, notice what the text says, His adversaries, His enemies. And this is like the biggest difficulty for the view that says, hey, this is all a heavenly father's loving discipline of true believers uh, because they are immature 
and lack, uh, you know, are apathetic about growing. No, this is a consuming, raging fire that is hostile and poured out on God's enemies. Now, I love to tell this story. Many years ago, a father and his daughter were walking through the grasslands of the Canadian prairie. And in the distance, they saw a prairie fire, and they realized it would soon engulf them. And if you've ever seen, in fact, out in Kansas right now, these things are going on. I have a cousin who's a firefighter, and it's just, it just blows across. It's just kindling. And it just blows. And this dad and his daughter were out there. And the dad, you know, thought very quickly and said, we have one hope. We can't outrun this. We can't escape this. This is inevitable. This is coming. Our only hope is to burn the grass around which we are standing. And so they ignited a fire around them, burned down that grass, stood in the place where the fire had already been. And when the prairie fire swept, it went around them. It went around them, and the little girl was terrified. But her father assured her with these words, The flames can't get to us. We're standing where the fire has already been. And that's the message of this. The fire of God's consuming wrath has been poured out on His Son, Jesus Christ. Run to Him and you will escape the fire because it's already been poured out from Him. But when you walk outside of that area that has already been burnt, when you walk away from the, the, the sacrifice, the sufficient wrath-absorbing sacrifice of Jesus Christ, then you are engulfed by the fire. I ran across another story by a famous expositor of a generation past, Donald Barnhouse, that tells of a time when a prairie fire swept across his father's land and burned everything. The house, the buildings, the cr- I mean, they, they lost it all in this fire. Later on, his dad was walking across the burned ground and kicking this object and that. You know, you always see people doing that in disasters. You're just walking through the devastation and you're kind of in shock and you're looking at things. And he was kicking at stuff with his feet. When suddenly he came to a charred piece of something, he didn't know what it was, that looked like a stump from a tree and he kicked at it. And when he did... Little baby chickens started running in all directions. He bent over to look at it and he discovered that the charred lump was the old mama hen who had covered her chickens to protect them from the fire. And so they were still alive, but in the process, she had given her life for them because that's what mother chickens do. And that's what God the Father has done for his children. He gave his only begotten son and Jesus gave his life and suffered eternal wrath and died on the cross that we're looking toward to celebrate. And he took that so that all who run to him in faith and remain loyal with a persevering faith will live though he died. And the good news is, unlike the mama chicken, Jesus rose again. Amen. And he can offer that kind of protection. So the only thing that remains is a terrifying expectation of certain judgment for the apostate. But secondly, the second reality is remain loyal because for the apostate, all they deserve, all they deserve is greater judgment 
greater punishment for forsaking new covenant salvation. All they deserve is greater punishment because the word now in verse 29 is a new word for judgment, another word, punishment. They deserve greater punishment for forsaking new covenant salvation, privileges, promises. It's the whole package, the new covenant package of salvation that's found in Christ. Look at verses 28 and 29. It's an argument from lesser to greater. Verse 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? So the first thing he says in verse the first idea here is New, Test, New Testament apostates deserve a greater punishment. Circle that word greater. A greater punishment than what was required for apostates under the Old Covenant. Now, the lesser punishment under the Old Covenant is found in Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 17. Because of time, we're not going to read those passages, but that's the background. And in those passages... Someone who walked away from the old covenant under Moses, who walked away denying their faith and worshiping false gods, idols. All right? They received the death sentence that was physical death by stoning. And they received it according to this verse and according to the Old Testament without mercy. You didn't get a second chance. It needed to be investigated. You needed to be careful. You needed two or three witnesses. This wasn't something you did lightly. There needed to be facts and evidence. There needed to be a trial. But the reality is this. When you've walked away from the faith and you start worshiping other gods, it, it's, pretty, it's pretty evident. And so they got the physical death sentence by stoning without mercy by two or three witnesses. So what's the greater punishment? What is the greater punishment under the New Testament? Well, it's a greater death sentence. It's still a death sentence, but it's a greater one. And instead of physical death, it's spiritual death. It's this. Spiritual death. Separation from God poured out with the wrath of God. And it's without mercy. There's no second chance after death. And there possibly might not be a second chance once you've committed this sin. This sin possibly, even in this life, might be a sin of no return, a point of no return. I'm not definite on that because I think the idea is this. As long as you're persisting in this direction, there is no, there, there is equally persisting no sacrifice for your sins. In other words, as long as you're persisting in this, then wrath is what you're getting. But what we do know for sure is that once death occurs, it is appointed under people, unto people, once to die, and after this, this judgment. And so, there is no second chance. There is no mercy extended. You have walked away. From, why? They've walked away. Where's the mercy found? In the person they are now rejecting. Where's the mercy found? In the sacrifice that they are now 
treating as profane? Where is salvation in the spirit of grace that they are now insulting? And so they are without mercy and they have no second chance. And here's what's frightening. Instead of two or three human witnesses, it's going to be the trifold witness of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what you see there in verse 29. The Father gives the Son. It is the Son of God. The Father will testify against you. I gave my Son and you rejected Him. Secondly, the Son will testify. I gave my life and sacrificed my life for the sins of the whole world. And you have walked away from that. And third, the Holy Spirit of grace who bestows and applies salvation will say, I freely offered this and you walked away. So you see there's a greater punishment. But who receives this greater punishment and why? Well, the people who receive it, well, first of all, you could say in general, all unbelievers receive this. But in this passage, we're not talking about just any unbeliever. We're talking about who? Apostates who once received and knew and identified with the church and identified with Christ, probably were baptized probably had taken communion many times, and who walked away, never to darken the door of the church again. That's in Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. So who is it? Apostates are anyone. Apostates can be pastors, elders, deacons, Sunday school teachers. Apostates can be parents, spouses, children, nephews, nieces, relatives, friends mentors anyone because notice in verse 28 it says anyone who is set aside and then look in verse 29 how much severe punishment do you think he it's this singular generic third person it can be anyone it can be anyone anyone who deliberately chooses to persist in the sin of apostasy and what is it that they are who are these people number one They're trampling under their feet the sovereign Son of God. They are trampling under their feet the sovereign Son of God. And if you grew up in a Hebrew, Asian culture, you understand honor and shame. And the most dirty, the most shameful object on your body is what? Your feet. Because they're always dirty. They're down in the ground, right? And so when you placed your foot, if you were defeated an enemy, you would literally make the enemy lay down and then you would place their foot right on their face, right on their neck, shaming them and defeating them. All throughout the New Testament, this idea of trampling things under your feet as as a way of shameful rejection is in the Scriptures. For instance, in Matthew 5.13, in the Sermon on the Mount, what did Jesus say you did with salt that was worthless and useless and no longer salty? You threw it out to be trampled under feet. You would throw it on the path in front of your house and it would harden the ground and form a kind of concrete patio for people to be stepping on. That's what the apostate is doing with Christ. You're worthless You're useless. I walk away from you. And I throw you out as as nothing more than trash 
to be trampled underfoot. In Matthew 7, 6, again, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, it talks about don't cast your pearls before swine to be, what? Trampled underfoot. The apostate treats the glorious Son of God as nothing more than pig slop to be thrown away, walked away from. And then in 2 Kings and in Luke 21, this idea of trampling under feet your enemy that you have defeated. Basically what the apostate says is, I know you're the master and I'm supposed to be your servant, but I'm walking away from you because I'm large and in charge. I'm the master and you do my bidding. In fact, many apostates walk away from Jesus because he didn't do their bidding the way, he, the way they wanted. You didn't save my mother. You didn't answer my prayer. You allowed this to happen to me. And so they walk away. And they declare, I'm the master of my destiny. And they trample the Son of God underfoot. Secondly, they treat as common the sanctifying blood of the sacrifice. They walk away from the blood sacrifice that atones for sin and sets us apart. They treat it as common. They treat it as unclean. This idea is when something is holy, you treasure it, you value it, you take care of it, you honor it. And when something's common, eh, just use it any old way. I've told this story many times. We used to have a butter knife, you know, our normal butter knife and we had a dog and the dog would drop its messes outside and my brother and I had the wonderful job of picking up his messes my mother thought it was important to have a clean you know backyard and so we clean that up well inevitably we would miss and not see that we go out to play and we get dog poop on our shoes and so we had we took mom took one of the knives and set it apart as unclean and that was the knife we scraped the dog poop off of our shoes. Well, let me tell you, that knife never found its way with the other knives, at least that I know of, okay? Why? Because it's profane. It's unclean. It's, it, it's, it's, it, you just do it. You use it for that kind of nasty, dirty things. And that's the thing about Jesus Christ. They're treating His blood sacrifice as if it's common, ordinary, worthless. I'm walking away from it. I'm walking away from it. This brings to mind, because we're talking about believer priests, this brings to mind two sons, two sets of sons of high priests. Because Jesus is our high priest, and we're his sons and daughters, and we're believer priests. And if you, I'm just reading through the Old Testament here of late, and, and just read these two stories. The two sons of Aaron. They set up the altar. God's fire comes down. And then these two sons say, you know what? We're priests. We can do what we want. And so they walk in and offer an unauthorized sacrifice. And the fire of God comes out and consumes them. The two sons of Aaron. Then later in 1 Samuel, you get the two sons of Eli. Eli, another high priest with two sons who were priests. And these two sons declared and treated as common the sacrifices that God's people, and they would take the best parts for themselves instead of having them burnt unto the Lord. And these two sons also died. You see, because there is a consuming 
certain expectation. Well, we're the sons of the great high priest, Jesus Christ. We don't trample him, and we don't treat what he has done as profane and common. And third, taunting the spirit of grace with arrogant insults. Taunting the spirit of grace with arrogant insults. You know, here's the, here's the reality. When you walk away from the Spirit of grace, all you get is the fire of God's judgment. How outrageous to walk away from the Holy Spirit that promised you eternal salvation. And why, why do they deserve this punishment? Why do they deserve it? Because apostasy is a sin against the greatest degree of light from God you could have. There's degrees of rewards in heaven. There's degrees of judgment in hell. And the apostate, apostasy is a sin against the greatest degree of light you could possibly have. I know the gospel and I'm walking away from it. Wow. And all that remains then, number three, is all that remains for the apostate is all that God has spoken about himself and his word will come to pass. All that he has spoken will come to pass. And here's what's wild about verses 30 through 31. There are all these factual statements. They're just bare facts because you can't, you can't, God has spoken. And there's no denying what he has said. The first fact is about the faithfulness of his people. Isn't it interesting that he says, after saying all this judgment in the third person, he then says, for we know him. I was getting worried there for a minute, author of Hebrews. For we know him. And we know that what he says in Scripture is what he means. That's the idea. We know him. It's in the perfect tense. We came to know Him and we continue to know Him. And the idea is keep knowing Him. All right? Secondly, there's two facts about the fierceness of His vengeance. Mine, emphasizing, mine is the vengeance. I myself will repay and I will judge, meaning vindicate as the Lord. I will vindicate His people. I will vindicate, he will vindicate his people. Here's the first fact. God himself will execute his vengeance. God himself will take care of business. There's no escape. God himself. Oprah can say what she wants. Jen Hatmaker can say what she wants. Rob Bell can say what he wants. You can write books. You can write blogs. You can make movies. You can walk away from the faith. You can create God in your own image. And God himself will take care of business in the end. That's the idea. That's the first fact. The second quote is that the judgment the Lord brings will vindicate His people. He will vindicate His people. And here's the idea. Don't get discouraged. There is more apostasy going on than ever before, and you know about it more because of social media. But take heart, believer. God will vindicate you. Remain loyal. Remain loyal. When others leave, you stay. When others trample, you honor. You remain loyal because God will vindicate. And then finally, one final fact, the frightfulness of His fiery wrath. I mean, verse 31, you just need to read it, read it, 
and read it again. Facts are stubborn things, and there will be no escape in the end. And so what do we do? As true believers, remain loyal. And next week, we're going to learn not only remain loyal, but press on. Okay, that's next week. For those neglecting, hardening, stagnating, forsaking, and refusing, listen up and be warned. You Get growing. Get growing. Get inviting people. Get, get living the Christian life that you have. And for apostates, listen, here's what we do. We warn them and we don't give them false assurance. And we don't give ourselves false assurance. Listen, those who are walking away by forsaking the habitual worship of God with His people are not to be encouraged in that. And we should not take false hope that they did something in the past, therefore they're okay now in the present, and will be so in the future. That's not what this passage says. This passage says, warn them, and do not give them false assurance. Does that mean that we come down and judge what's going on in their heart? No, we don't know. We take them to the Word. I'm concerned for you. I'm concerned for you. Please read God's Word because you are in danger. And I love you and I fear for you. Make sense? All right. We'll talk a little bit more about this. Final message is next week. Final message. Press on. Let's pray. Father, we come. And these are hard words. But they are gracious words because you're warning us before it happens. That's grace. You don't have to warn us. That's grace. And you are compassionate, forgiving, and loving, but you are zealous, jealous, and holy. And, oh God, let those of us here who profess to know him and have been loyal, remain loyal, and press on to the finish, Lord. Let us not grow weary in well-doing. Let us not slack off spiritually. And Lord, I pray for those who are on that. They're just right there at the point. They've already taken many of these steps. They've, they've forsaken habitually worshiping you with your people. They've, they've neglected and stagnated in their spiritual life. Their Bibles go unread and unopened for months and years on end. Oh, Father, I pray that the Spirit of grace would work in their hearts. And I pray, Lord, as hard as it is, we would not give false assurance. And we would not find hope in false assurance where you give none. And I pray, Lord, that like the believers in Mozambique, when it's our time to be interrogated and intimidated, that we will stand true because of your Son, your Spirit, and the sacrifice that has been made and atoned for our sins. We pray this in Jesus' wonderful name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.